All right, well, let's head into our study. We are studying on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we've all kind of, if you've been able to, grabbed one of these copies of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and John. It's a scripture journal that you can engage with scripture together with us. Uh, it, it is wrong for me just to preach the Word of God. That's right, to preach the Word of God, but it would be wrong for me not to have us all engage in the Word of God, and that's what we're trying to do. If you don't have one of these, they're located on the, the racks of the Bibles. You can take them home. They're free to you to take and, and join us in this study. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, and so let's just go ahead and read that, uh, a lengthy passage here in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is John, the apostle. He writes this, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours alone, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Now, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, but the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John starts out this letter with a very endearing phrase that I think is something that we should notice. He uses this phrase, my little children. Now John, who's the author of this, is an older man. He pins this letter sometime after he penned the Gospel of John. And so John would be a man that physically walked with Christ in flesh. Like the incarnate God was with John. He walked next to him. He has spent his whole life in ministry serving Jesus Christ. And so this man, John, with that kind of accolade, is writing to this younger generations of believers who didn't know Christ the same way that he knew Christ, who probably didn't experience what he experienced, nor would have a robust knowledge of doctrine the way that he would have had. He's writing to these little children, as he calls. And you Couple that together with the fact that he's writing this letter to a group of churches in the area of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey who had significant problems with doctrine within their church. And so a younger, more inexperienced, more immature church that has found itself in the midst of deep division because of poor 
doctrine, John, the pillar of our faith, the man that walked with Jesus, addresses that group as my little children. Now, knowing who John is, he would have been completely right to say, you idiots, what are you doing in your churches? Hey, listen, kids, I got something to say to you. But no, John doesn't. John, as a mature believer in Christ, says, my little children. It's an endearing phrase spoken by a godly man, a mature man to his fellow brothers and sisters. And what we should note in this is John's grace and love. We should note John's grace and love as a mature believer to those who are not as far along in their faith journey as he is. They're not far along in knowledge and right doctrine. Like, look, God's love never changes for those who he calls his own, but we as believers, we should grow in our knowledge, our convictions, in our doctrine. We should grow in those areas in our lives. And so with John's statement, we, we should take it to heart in the way that we speak to other generations that are younger than us. Because, look, there is this phenomenon that's present within every generation that speaks against the subsequent generations that follow them. We look at the generations behind us and we have complaints about this new generation of believers and they're more liberal, they're weaker in certain areas. When I was a kid, we went to church for 12 hours a day. We napped at the church. We walked uphill both ways. These kids got it easy these days. We've all been guilty at times of gossiping because that's what it is. It's gossiping to others about another generation's lack of something. And I'm not talking about cultural things necessarily. I'm talking about things of faith. But listen, what rings hollow in all of that complaining, in all of that gossiping, is the knowledge of how maturity is gained. Maturity is not something that you're born with. Growth is not something that's innate. Yes, physically, you're always going to grow up. But that's not always the case when it comes to your spiritual life, your mental or emotional life. It's not innate. Maturity and growth is either forced upon you or you have somebody who's loving towards you to come alongside of you and teach you the ways of this world. Somebody love you enough to let you fail and help you get back up. To grow up in the realm of maturity is to grow out of certain things. And if you don't have people to help you grow out of certain things, you will never grow up into Christ. And so when we complain about younger generations, all that does is come back to reveal our failures as the current generation and our responsibility to raise up these new generations of believers to understand the doctrine and the knowledge of God. It's an indication on us. And John's example here is the correct example that we should, with love in our hearts, instead of complaining or lamenting, as a mature believer, see it as our responsibility to help those under us grow and mature. And so he lovingly corrects my little children, my precious possessions, corrects them and guides them that they might have better doctrine. And what is it that he's writing these little children about? He, he, he's writing them so that they may not sin. I'm writing you things that you may not sin. Now, on the surface, this can seem a little contradictory of what John spoke in a previous chapter when John talked about 
sin as a condition, right? You are not a sinner because you do sinful things. You are a sinner and you do sinful things, right? So sinning in the action doesn't make you a sinner. You are a sinner and so you do sinful things. And, and he goes on to say that if you say you have no sin, then you do not practice the truth. And if you have said that you do not and have not sinned, then you have made God a liar because he came to die in the flesh for your sins to redeem you. You're a liar. And so in one shoe, John says, hey, there's going to be sin. You have it. But then on the other shoe here in two, he says, no sin, that you may not sin. So what is John getting at here? Well, John is trying to get at an identity piece because those of us who have faith were born again in Christ, we should surrender our desire to the old ways. We should lose the old self and live in light of the newness in Christ. And Paul talks about this very eloquently in Romans 6 when he says this. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So should we keep sinning so we can have more grace? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. These verses speak to the work of Christ and to our public identification in it. Baptism is the means in which we publicly identify ourselves as a Christian. This is who I am. Now the focus here in this verse is not on the act of baptism itself, but on the thing that baptism represents. To be baptized is to be baptized into a public identification as a follower of Christ, joined in his death, his burial, and resurrection. This is who I am. This is who I claim to be. This is what I live in light of. And so we all know that in our life there are certain roles that we play, certain things that we do, certain beliefs or preferences that we have that we bring into our identity. We, we have them as part of who we are. We think they're core beliefs about who we are. And all of those things that we have in our identity have a way of showing themselves out in the way that we live. They have a way of showing them in the public life. And so simply put, I know what sports teams that you like based upon your hats and your clothes. I know your jobs based upon your conversations, the questions that you answer. Maybe I could even watch where you travel. I could figure out where you work. Now that's stalking. I won't do that to you, right? I could tell your political leanings by probably looking at your social media profiles. If you identify, I'm a, I'm a guy about fitness, I can tell that you're somebody that's into fitness. It's easy to see. And so all the things that you wrap into being part of your identity show themselves out in the public world. Now listen, believer, as a follower of Christ, you are commanded to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, with all of your spirit. There should be nothing else in our life that should ever outprioritize our love for God in every aspect of our lives. 
Our jobs, our possession, our roles, our preferences, our, our, our opinions should never over-prioritize our love for God in heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nothing else is essential to your identity than to be a lover of God. And so the question that is asked to you, would people know it by your life? Or would they rather know what sports teams you follow? Would they know more about lesser things than your true identity in Christ? And so what John is getting about here when he says that you may not sin, as he couples it together with with, you should walk in God's commandment, you should guard yourself, keep his commandment. What he's saying is that in light of what God has done for us, our lives should look more like his that we should walk in the manner that He walked, that we should be like the sinless, perfect Christ, that we should desire Him and His kingdom and His kingship and His way and His thoughts, that we should put our life of sin behind us, that we should kill the habits of sin in us and desire abundant life in Christ as our identity. We've been raised to life in Christ. What defines you should be your identity in Christ and the world should see the difference in you. You should look like little Christ more and more and more. That when the world sees you, they see the perfect Christ imperfectly coming out of your life, out of your nature, out of your heart. And John says this is the evidence in which we know that somebody is a believer. This is the evidences of us knowing Christ, that we aim to be like him, that we aim to be molded like him. And then John compels us that, look, if there isn't a desire in you to follow God's commands, if there's not a desire in you, then look, you don't know him. The evidence that one is a believer is that they follow God's commands. There should be a desire to keep His Word. And that word keep means that we guard it, that we protect it, that we fight for it, that we revere, that we live and walk in light of it. And John says that if you want to know if somebody really believes, really knows God, you can tell by whether or not they're actively obeying God's Word. And if they're not, then they're on the level of knowing about Jesus, but not on the level of knowing Jesus in a personal relationship. We walk with Him because we love Him. And here's the thing about loving God. The more that you love God, the more that you know God. And the more that you know God, the more that you love God. It's a repeating cycle. The more you love Him, the more you know Him. The more you know Him, the more you love Him. And it changes your life. It redefines who you are, that you live your old, you leave your old patterns of sin behind you because you have abundant life in a resurrected Savior. Now, John is not compelling us that we will live a sinless life. That is not what he's saying here. He's not saying that you're going to live a perfect life, a completely obedient life, that, that you, you just walk perfectly. What he is saying is that we should live like Christ, that we should desire to live like him and not to sin. Because of who we serve, in light of our identity in him, we serve him and we don't serve sin. But as believers, the good news for you and I 
is that we have this thing called propitiation. We have an advocate who sits with the Father on our behalf that cleanses us from all sorts of unrighteousness. Now the word propitiation, there's a word to put in your lexicon this week, good luck. Propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. And that means is that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross fully satisfied God's demand for justice in our sins. Every last drop of wrath was poured onto Christ and none onto us, that we in his sacrifice might attain righteousness through his grace. Amen. We have a propitiation. Another word that is common put with that is atonement. They basically mean the same thing. Sin cannot go unpunished. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins. And if we have faith and put our trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, he will forgive our sins and he will heal us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now remember, John is writing to assure that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He was without sin. He's an acceptable sin offering. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for our sin, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. And now he sits with the Father as an advocate, and he says this, he's mine. She's mine. I've got my blood, my cross, paid the price for them. He is my child. So that when we do fall, that we can appeal to our advocate in Christ in confession and say, Father, Help me. That when we do mess this thing up, that we know that we have the blood of Christ that enables us to pick ourselves back up and try. Again, that is the means of grace. And grace is so important and it's so central to who we are as believers that God has weaved it into every crevice of His design. One of the things that I love about Scripture is watching how the precepts of God, the commands of God, the heart of God are within His design and within His creation. And so when we think about this as growing up, we were students at one point. And when you were growing up in school, you were learning new concepts, new precepts. So in education, there, there's a right way. Right? Two plus two is always going to equal four. And so there's this perfect standard, this right way and we are trying to desire to, to, to know it. But what do we have? We have an advocate, a teacher, who sits between us and the perfect standard that helps us, when we desire to learn, to move closer to the right understanding. Because there is a right and a wrong. When you're an employee, you have a task to do. There's a right way to do that task. There's an efficient way to do that task. And we have been given an advocate in a boss or a supervisor who, if we desire it and say, I want to do this right, is there, has a higher level of knowledge, has a higher level of experience to help you walk towards the right thing. As parents, that's our role with our kids. As kids, when you grew up, you knew nothing. And you appealed to an advocate that knew a better authority, a better way, a higher level of living. God intertwines his desires into the very fabrics of creation. All of those authorities, all of those things are designed by the Father, by God himself, in a way that echoes and speaks towards the design of his flourishing and his grace. Systems like governments, parents, bosses, teachers are there for us to grow under and thrive under. 
We all have opportunities because of advocates to approach authority to get it right, to do the right thing. And listen, all of those things speak to the grace of God, not by accident. Grace is demonstrated in the very minute fabrics of our life, that we have an advocate in Christ who helps us live to the perfect standard of God. That if we are faithful to confess our sins, to say, Father, I'm not getting this right. I'm messing this thing up, Lord. Can you help me? That he is faithful to forgive our sins, that he sends the Holy Spirit of God to guide us into a more perfect image of him on earth. And so what's to note in this verse that John speaks about propitiation is that it says that Christ died for the sins of the world. And so it's very important that we understand Scripture by the rest of Scripture. We should never take a piece of Scripture out of context and make some sort of meaning based upon it it in itself. We always should look at Scripture in the light of other Scriptures because there are those in this world that would claim that this verse supports the fact that, that when Christ died for the sins of the world, it means that everybody wins, that everybody will be saved at the end of this time. That is a view called universalism. And it is not consistent with the teachings of the rest of Scripture. And, and John 17, right after the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, John in his Gospel writes this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Universalism fails to meet the requirement, the test of Scripture, the tragic reality, and there's no joy in this reality, is that there will be people who will not accept Christ. Scripture is very clear that there will be those who reject the name of Christ. In fact, in his gospel, John writes about Jesus, who was not even received by his own people. But to all who receive him, he has given us the right to be a child of God, those who believe in his name. That is the gift of salvation is free to whoever will accept it. It is true to whoever will accept it. God draws himself to us. He draws us to himself. Scripture states that by his spirit, by his grace, we cannot be saved unless God draws us to himself. And so that is why our mission as believers is so important. The word says that faith comes by hearing the word. And that is why we as believers must be a part of the mission of God to spread the word of God, that people will hear the word of God and have an invitation to join us in salvation in eternal life. Faith comes through hearing. And now in this text, John takes this kind of, you think, John, are you, are you senile? Because you write about an old, new command. Critics would look at him and say, what is he talking about? John says that I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command. And in verse 8, he says, yet I am writing you a new command. So which is it? Is it an old one? Is it a new one? Well, it, the answer is both. And he says it here at the same time. It's old and new at the same time. The old, old command goes all the way back to Moses, but it has taken on a new character with the coming of Christ. This is the point. It's old and it's new. And that newness is threefold. It's true and new in Christ. It's true and new in you. And it's true and new because the darkness is fading away and the light is already shining. In Christ, that command is that we love. That, to love others 
is a command that is old and it's new. You can find it all the way back in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, and you can find it in every aspect of the gospel, that we should love one another, and it is strengthened and deepened and expanded in giving depth and meaning and understanding through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And now for those who believe, that same kind of supernatural love is evident in those who abide and trust in his name, who keep his word. Jesus Christ has dealt the final blow on darkness. Darkness is on the run. Listen, I know it doesn't feel like it in your life. But listen, darkness is on the run. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The king of light has come and we will not fully recognize it and feel it and have it until his consummation, until he comes back someday. But how we love one another is evident towards our love for Christ. How we love one another gives evidence to our belief in Christ. Love is not new. It is as old as God and it's rooted in his law Yet it's new in our conversion. It's new in the depths of how Jesus lived. It's new in experience, emphasis, expression, and endurance. It's as old as the sun and as new as the dawn. You cannot hate your brother and live in the light. It is why we focus so much here on loving our brothers in other churches. We are so focused on partnering with other churches to show love to one another. Because simply put, why would anybody want to come to know the beauty of Christ if we, as his believers, can't get along? John draws this stark contrast between those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness, between those who love and those who hate, between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. In verse 9, he's essentially saying, if you are in the light, experience the life of God, yet you are continually hating your brother, only one conclusion can be drawn. You are still in darkness. You're in the realm of spiritual death and moral corruption and evil and wickedness. You still belong to the devil. Verse 10 provides the contrast to this. He says, if you are consistently loving your brother, you are continually abiding in the light and giving evidence that God is in your life. And so if you continue to hate your brother, there are four things that are true of you. First, you're in darkness, which is spiritual death. Second, you walk, live in the darkness. Third, you don't know where you're going. And fourth, you're blind. You're blind. In the darkness of spiritual death, there is an absence of the love of God and the absence of God in our life. And tragically, those who live in the darkness most often can't see that they're in the darkness. They have adapted their lifestyle to live in the darkness. And they're like blind men in a dark room who don't know where they're at or where they're going. And it's a tragedy. And so as a believer, we have through the Holy Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, we have an ability to take our thoughts captive. We have the ability to change our perspective. And we have to change our perspective here on how we love our fellow brothers and sisters. There is a very practical way that that is always proven to be helpful for me when it comes to living in this light. A practical way to apply the gospel to my life in my everyday activities. And and this this is how that works. Wherever you are at, I'm sure that you maybe, if you're honest, could picture somebody that you hate. 
wherever you're at, what is a good idea for you to do? Is to think of all of the things that have angered you about that person. All the things that they have done to cause you anger. And list them in your head. And then I want you to think about yourself. And I want you to list all the things that you have done to anger God. I would say probably don't list those in their head. It's going to take a while. But then I want you to ask this question. Are the things that they have done that have angered me even close to the things that I have done that would anger God? But yet God in his riches of grace and mercy to me extends me love and mercy. Which is better? That is a very practical guide that we must live by. Is my anger right here compared to what I've received in Christ? We love because he first loved us. We should afford others the same love and grace that we have got. And it helps us to work out those things. It makes you a better believer to work through those things instead of what our natural inclination is, is to run away from it. And so these are the things that we learn from John's text here in first, or Second John, or John, First John 2, is that we are to be patient. Listen, be patient with younger believers. It's our responsibilities to train them up. As a mature believer, speak tenderly into them and guide them. Number two is desire your new identity more than your old identity. John is writing these words in the same manner that he wrote the words to that church at that time, so that we may not sin, that we may have better knowledge, better belief, to know fully the way to walk with God. And if you do sin, understand that you have a complete propitiation, complete atonement for your sin that doesn't enable you to take advantage of the grace, but it enables you to get up and walk again without fear of wrath or condemnation from God. And thirdly, or fourthly, and lastly, we have to remind ourselves of the love that Christ gave for us. And it has to inform every one of your relationships. If you hate your brother, you do not understand how deeply God has forgiven you. And we have to walk every day letting the gospel impact our hearts and our minds as we extend ourselves into this world, that we should love our brothers and sisters regardless, regardless of whether they offend me or not, hurt me or not. Those are the things that John teaches us. And then he ends his letter with some really endearing words of encouragement when he says that I'm writing to you little children. And when John is writing these things, he's not speaking specifically about groups of people as much as he is about people in their maturity in Christ, little children maturity-wise, fathers, those who are more mature, younger men who are... He says these, these are what he says, I'm writing you little children, those of you who are really immature, to understand because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I, I write you, children, because you know the Father. I write you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so what John is saying is like, like, remember who you are and live in light of your identity and what God has done for you. Little children, young men, fathers, 
Sisters, brothers, remember who he is and be encouraged that he has done it all for you and walk in desire towards him. Let's pray. Jesus, we wrestle with the question seemingly on an everyday basis of like, Lord, how much can I have of this world and still get you? And Lord, I just pray that you would just, through your spirit, that you would reverse that question, that all we would desire is you, and if we have some things in this material world, that we would just be okay with it. But all we want would be you. And so God, move our hearts by the power of your word, by your Holy Spirit, to new places, that, Lord, that we would fully root our identity in who we are, heart, soul, strength, and mind in you, and that the world would know you by the way that we live, a way that is different than what the world compels to us. And so, God, give us all the grace that we need to move there. Give us all the knowledge that we need that reveals our sin, that reveals our brokenness, that we can confess it to you, Father. And no guilt and shame, holding on to that guilt and shame, and walk into you in your grace and your love. And so, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.